everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is our co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have got an amazing show for you today. We're going to focus on DEF CON hacks. We've got questions about how connected driving is going to work. We've got a bunch of news bits, including Wink being sold to Will I Am. We've got a Q&A from one of our readers, and we're going to highlight an improbable IoT product this week because... It's really improbable. And after all of that, we will have a message from our sponsor, Hiko Solutions. You're going to want to hear about them. And our guest this week is Sam George, who's in charge of Microsoft's Azure IoT efforts. And we're going to talk about a lot of industrial and enterprise IoT information. So stick around for all of that. And now... We're going to do a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Eero, and they are launching their second generation mesh Wi-Fi system. These new Eero systems contain one big Eero that is in the older square shape and one to two beacons, which are mesh access points. They also have cool features like a nightlight. They're smaller and you can put them just about anywhere. You just plug them right in. There is no port. You will also be able to buy individual Eros or beacons to add to your current system. They are fully backwards compatible. So for example, I spent $149 and I bought an additional beacon to put in my hallway to improve coverage for my Wi-Fi doorbells because they needed it. So the original system containing one Eero and two beacons starts at $399. Again, this is for people who are in the market for a mesh Wi-Fi system. I have one. I have the Eros. I have loved them for a long time. And the new system is faster. So you may want to start adding new pieces. I don't know. And what I like about them, it's just so easy to extend your mesh network with the beacons. You just, like you said, plug them into an outlet and boom, you've got instant coverage. Plus you've got backwards compatibility if you have the old era. So if you are interested, you can go to www.ero, that is E-E-R-O.com. And with this code Stacy, you get free shipping. And I encourage all of you to go out, grab some of these, and tell them that we sent you. All right. Now back to the show. Kevin! Let's talk about hacking. Mmm, lots of hacking to talk about. Yeah, last week was DEF CON and B-Sides, actually. So, big hacking conference in Las Vegas, and we learned a lot of things, such as, I think we learned about the Amazon Echo getting hacked. I don't know if that happened at DEF CON, but there was definitely, there's always a lot of news around it. Yeah, it happened around the same time as DEF CON. I don't think it happened during DEF, or at DEF CON, but this is... At first, it's concerning, but it's a little less concerning once I explain what the hack actually is and what it takes. Um, but essentially, a security researcher has been able to show that he can take over the microphone of Amazon Echo, not an Echo Dot or an Echo Tap or any other kind of Echo. It's only on the Amazon Echo, the, the original one. And he can listen in and have the audio that it captures sent to a server or elsewhere, and you don't even know. Now, again, that sounds concerning, and it should be. However, newer Echoes are not affected by the hack. So if you have an Echo, check and see the uh, the packaging or the device itself. And if there's a 2017 on it and a model number ending in 02, it is not vulnerable. But anything else is vulnerable. However, to actually implement the hack, 
he or somebody would need to have physical access to your echo. They would need some time to manipulate the files on it. There's a root exploit that he would need to use. So if nobody's coming in and out of your house. Oh my God. It's like, it's like the 21st century version of like having the Russian spies come in and bug your place. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So I would say, um, don't fret too much about this. I don't know if Amazon can actually fix this with a firmware update, though. That's that's the more concerning part to me so for, for the older Echoes, which mine was bought before this year, so I'm sure it's vulnerable. And Stacey, I'm sure yours is too. Oh, yeah. Mine, I was, mine was first yeah. off the line. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that can be fixed. I'm okay with that. I figured. So in addition to, ooh, your Amazon Echo could be hacked. Freak out, but don't. We also have car washes could be hacked. This is actually from DEF CON. And these researchers showed that they could find access to automatic car washes online. I bet they were using Shodan, to be honest. And what happened is they could find these car washes online and they could gain control of them, lock a vehicle in them, and then beat the vehicle with the robotic washing arm. That's so scary. It is a very scary thing to have happen, I'm sure. But the reason this is happening is because these car washes are online and they didn't change the password. So like if you own a car wash and you invested in the automated thing, maybe change your password. That's going to help a lot. Which then brings us to, oh my God, it's 2017 and we're still having to tell people to change their password, but maybe next mm. year we won't because there is new IoT security legislation proposed in the Senate. Now, go for it, Kevin. I wonder if they're listening to us because I think it's the last two or three episodes we've been talking about potential consumer protection legislation for smart devices. And this is a step. It is a baby step. And, and there's no guarantees that the legislation is going to pass, but it wouldn't surprise me because it's very minimal. But it is a bipartisan legislation that would prohibit vendors from offering up devices that have unchangeable passwords, which is good. You should be able to change your password if you purchase something and or possess known security vulnerabilities. I'd read a separate article about this, aside from the Reuters one that I'm looking at right now, and I believe it said um, it would also require the devices to be firmware updatable yes. uh, remotely. So again, that's kind of a given for most of these devices today, but still. It's mm -hmm. actually, it would require vendors that provide internet-connected equipment to the U.S. government to ensure their products are patchable and conform to industry security uh, standards. Well, gee, look, look out for the government, not for the people. <laughs> so the legislation allows federal agencies to ask the U.S. Office of the OMB, Office of Management and Budget, mm -hmm. to buy non-compliant devices if other controls such as network segmentation are in place. So most of these, I'm like, wow, this is like the bare minimum and doesn't protect consumers. Yeah. Right. But it does expand protections for cyber researchers who are working in good faith to hack equipment, which is a big deal because, you know, I don't know if you guys remember, but Oracle used to sue hackers like all mm -hmm. the time. And granted, there's this whole kind of idea of I don't know if bug bounties are controversial still, but they used to be because people would be like, well, why don't you just tell us we're, you know, that you've hacked us? Why do we have to pay you? And, and kind of it felt a little extortionistic to mm -hmm. some people. 
It's a good incentive, though. I think. It is. It's actually one of the things I tell people to look for. If you're going to buy a connected home product or a connected device, look for companies that have bug bounties because it does mean that they are serious about or more serious about security. Right. So yay for getting on board. I would like to see consumer protections. I would like to see the FTC yep. enabled to expand consumer protections in this area. Mm -hmm. um, this looks like it's only the government. Yeah, I think you're right. But it's a start. So, and, you know, who knows if we're going to get anything passed. Congress has been kind of, yeah, let's call it divided. This is legislation in the Senate. They're going to introduce similar legislation in the House. What will have to happen is they're going to talk about it, send it to committee. If it makes it out of committee, then they're going to vote on versions of it. Who knows what else will get stuck in there. And then maybe, maybe it will become a law. So there's a lot left here. So it may die in committee. Mm -hmm. But, hey, at least they're talking about it. So yep. let's move on to other talking, specifically how our cars are going to talk to things. And what will they talk to? Well, I remember way back when you and I worked for GigaOM, I remember our colleague Katie Ferenbecker used to do a bunch of research and stories on cars using a specific uh, Wi-Fi protocol to talk to each other. Remember that? Yes, it was the vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications, V2V. I don't remember which... Yeah, 802, 802 dot, something, something something I don't remember either yeah but but obviously since then because that's I think three four five years ago since then autonomous vehicles have really I'll say taken off you know there's a lot of momentum in that area which is awesome but there's a lot of other things on the road that are not cars you know we have pedestrians on the side of the road which yes cars can see them but you also have bicycles especially in a lot of urban areas um, you have scooters, you have motorcycles, so on. And none of these things talk to the cars. The cars may even have problems identifying them or discerning them from pedestrians. So there's a uh, researcher out of Carnegie Mellon who says, hey, you know, cars have a regular pattern with the way they move. But people are riding, when people are riding bicycles, they change between acting like cars on the side of the road or they might look like pedestrian because now they're up on the sidewalk. And sometimes and they stop or they don't stop at stop signs. Okay, that's my pet. <laughs> this is true. No, I I know I'm I'm guilty of that myself on my my road bike. But you're absolutely right. They're they're not as predictable as a car when you look at it that way. What this researcher is doing is he actually loaded up a bicycle with lidar and radar and cameras and everything else, and he's trying to create data that maybe they can add to the algorithms to the cars that say, hey, that's really a bike and here's what you need to be careful for. It may not stop at the stop sign, for example, or, you know, it's not a pedestrian, so it might have different rules that it has that apply to it and so on. So it's kind of interesting. I'm intrigued by this because I do ride a road cycle quite a bit. I'm actually going for my motorcycle permit probably next week in hopes of buying a large scooter. And part of me says, yeah, this is a great idea. But the thing is, bicycles are not battery powered and you're going to need battery power, constant battery power for bikes to be able to speak to cars, for example, if they want to say, hey, I'm over here, don't come in my lane or whatever. And I don't know how that's going to work. Me either. So <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I will. No, I'm thinking about it. There are lots of USB powered bike accessories. So I could see a couple things. I see you add on like in the beginning, you'll add on like a USB thing. I'm very mm -hmm. curious about like motion kinetic energy harvesting from a bike. Mm -hmm. It's possible. Sure. So could you power something that way for like longer rides? It's kind of got to be foolproof if, for example, eventually, and I'm thinking far ahead here, eventually there's a, a 
alert on your bike that says, hey, there's a car coming very close to you from behind or something like that, you know, because eventually I could see all the sensors that are in cars eventually make their way down to motorcycles and bicycles. But for that to work, you've got to have constant power. It can't be a sometimes I have power and sometimes I don't. Well, what what you'll have is constant power from a battery and it'll just, you'll have that constant power for a set amount of time. I mean, you'll be able to go on a four hour bike ride with those features. And then anything else, you're going to be back in the dark ages is my, mm. my hunch. I mean, cause think about it. They had like, they never came to market, but the Scully helmets, you know, where they were trying to do a heads up display, that was all powered on a helmet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that was charged. And then I don't know how long it would have lasted. I can see this happening. I think things like electric bikes, like in China right now, those oh, are sure. super big. So I think those kind of mm-hmm. things might become part of that. And it should, honestly, because those are valuable safety features. It does kind of get into this bigger discussion about how we'll design the roads of the future and like who will have right away, who will talk to whom and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. If you think about like the rules for cars versus maybe bikes and pedestrians and so on. Yeah. Maybe because bikes have less power, they might get more priority, like power in terms of like Mm -hmm. acceleration or yes. So cars will be like, oh, well, I'm autonomous. I'll just slow the heck down because I have not just that kind of power, but I have a longer battery life. I can totally afford to, you know, slow down, whereas this bike's got to get where it's going so it can recharge. Right, right. I I mean, I think we're we're way ahead of the curve on this discussion because we've got to wait for all the cars to become autonomous, and that's going to take time. And as you said, get there. We may not, we may not, but maybe a tipping point where most of them are or or something to that effect, then I think it trickles down to the smaller vehicles. I think we are ahead of the curve. Related only because we talked about it last week. Remember how we mentioned Google Glass making a comeback in industrial and such? Mm -hmm. I'm actually thinking of unretiring my Google Glass to wear under my motorcycle helmet specifically for a heads-up display for directions. Oh, that feels like it was going to hurt your bridge of your nose. Let me know how that works. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I have custom. I have custom lenses already inserted into custom glass frames for glass. Because when they came out, oh, yeah. you had to. Yeah, you had. You couldn't wear glasses with them, but now you can do that. So, yep. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing back from you on your both motorcycle test and your <laughs> Google Glass experiment. Okay, let's get to the news bits portion of the show, real quick. Eero. Hey, we talked about them earlier. They are a sponsor. They acquired the Thington dudes. So last week, we said Thington had shut down. And it had. Mm-hmm. Thington was mm-hmm. this uh, kind of wanted to be an OS for the smart home. Well, it turns out that Tom Coates and Matt Bildoff, the two founders and the only two employees I know of, is <laughs> they have been acqui-hired by Eero. Mm-hmm. And no one's talking much about what they're doing there. But I look forward to it because... Like I said, those guys are super smart and very thoughtful about living in a connected home and how people interact with a connected home and how it's not a one-to-one connection. So Mm -hmm. other news, Tracker, I'll say Track R, the Bluetooth Tracker company, I I don't know what else to call it. It helps you find your stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, They raise $50 million. They compete with a service like Tile. I am interested in them because they have this product called Tracker Atlas. It is not out yet. It was supposed to be out this summer. So far, 
Not out yet, but you plug these little plugs in there, like Bluetooth beacons in each of your rooms, and they have an echo skill. So what happens is you plug this in, and then it knows what room things are in. So you can say, hey, Madam A, where is my wallet? And it'll be like, it is in the living room. It won't tell you Mm -hmm. it's between the couch cushions, but you know, it's good to know where to start. I mean, we'll see what happens when this product comes out. It's still available for pre-order. As you said, it's not out yet. But I'm scratching my head on this one because I'm all for using Bluetooth as a location device. Uh, I have some trackers that I purchased before. I have some tiles as well. But moving everything to these two outlets, I just don't see the point of it because it really replicates what you should be able to do with your phone and a tracker app, meaning you got the processing power on your phone to algorithmically figure out the signal strength of where a Bluetooth tracker is, and it should kind of navigate you to the right room without these things, in my opinion. I think you might be right. I think there might be like a power drain that people might be upset about. Also, you've got to sell more hardware in the IoT connected business model. (laughs) (laughs) No, I get get the business model. (laughs) I'm just saying I'm not sure I agree with it. (laughs) No, no, that makes sense. And I would also say, I wrote about this company a couple weeks ago. It's called Swidget. They make outlets um, that you put stuff in. So I actually am kind of like, one day we're going to have all of this in our outlets. And by God, that's going to be a beautiful day. Until then, we may have to buy things that we plug in. Or in Kevin's case, we will just hope we can download an app that does it for us. So that's Tracker. Um, Other news, Wink was sold to Will I Am, who is not just a rap star and uh, outcast. I was like, not the outlaws, not the Fugees. Outcast. Mm. He was a member of Outcast and he also used to work for Intel as their like creative technology <laughs> ambassador guy. He had a watch that didn't go anywhere. Anyway, mm-hmm. Will I Am has bought Wink, the smart home platform from, from Flex. Flex. Mm. And Kevin is not happy. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, did I say that out loud? That was supposed to be my inner monologue. Tell us I, more about your inner well, monologue. Look, I mean, as a very happy Wink owner, I mean, you know, I could have gone with a d- bunch of different platforms, but I've I've stuck with Wink because it has worked well for me. I was already sad when Flex bought Wink because I'm like, oh, what's going to happen now, you know? But everything seemed to be okay, and it was, and now it's going to Will I Am, who just, in my opinion, does not have a very solid track record in the tech space. I remember when he came out with his wearable, and I'm like, oh, please, come on, it was it was terrible. I mean, it, you can't even get it now. So that tells you everything you need to know. I, I just, I don't have confidence in the ability. And hopefully he's surrounded himself with with good people and the Wink hardware and services and software continue to expand. But oh, I just was not happy when I heard this news. Well, you're going to be a little less happy because oh no, Nathan Smith, the former CTO at Wink, who was in charge of everything, I talked to him a bunch. He's actually gone over to Amazon now. Another fellow that I, I won't say his name because he's he's nice, but he's one of the people who have been at Wink forever, just mm-hmm. left for another job. So uh, I think we are going to have to, I mean, I'm willing to see, but I think we might, when people tell us they want a hub, we usually mm-hmm. said, if you're, you know, if you're not really into like playing around and working real hard, Wink is the way to go. Mm-hmm. We may change that recommendation going forward back to smart things. Although it is, we'll talk about this in another show because we're running out of time, but it is also an indication of where the hub market is and is going. Mm-hmm. So 
Lots happening there. Speaking of hubs, we asked you guys for questions and by God, y'all delivered. So we're going to take a question this week from Tom Brinsfield. And this is a good question. I'm going to kind of summarize it a little bit. So he's got a Google Home and he is currently looking for things to automate. So he's got a Google Home, Philips Hue hubs and three color bulbs and a Wemo switch for his porch lighting. Mm-hmm. So he has a problem though. He wants to automate a fluorescent light over his kitchen sink, but it doesn't have a neutral wire. So he can't use the Wemo switch. So mm-hmm. what he wants is getting voice control and remote control of that light. Second, he has a dumb monitor plasma TV, a Samsung Blu-ray player, and an older tuner that he runs sound through, as well as the Chromecast audio for music. None of these work with voice control. So is there any method that we know of that could give him the ability to turn these things on and switch some settings, especially on the tuner? Hmm. So, Tom, I feel like we've got really good news for you, but it is going to cost you. (laughs) That's usually how it works. So, yeah. So... Your lighting question is so common that I actually knew automatically where to send you, and I've done it myself, sort of. So because you want to have voice control and because you're dealing with a fluorescent, which a lot of the kind of automated dimmers don't mm-hmm. work with fluorescence, I'm going to steer you to the Lutron system for their on-off switch, because this is the only thing I know of that you can use without a neutral wire and still get voice control. So what you're going to need, and this is really important, is the Lutron PD5WS slash DV slash white. Actually, the WH stands for white. So if you need an almond one or something, you could look for that. But it's the Lutron PD5WS slash DV. The five stands for five amp. And this is important because they have a six amp one. The six amp one requires a neutral wire. Mm -hmm. So you have to get the five amp one. And you can order this. Amazon has a really high price on it right now. I ordered mine for like 65. Amazon right now is showing a hundred bucks for this. What you'll do is you'll pop this switch in. You're also going to need the Lutron hub, which is about $80. So again, pricey. Not cheap. Then you've got voice control of your fluorescent lights. And I have mine for my under cabinet lighting, what my husband always left on. And I love it. But I also have a lot of other Lutron switches around the house. So if you want to go that way, go that way. And I will tell you, I am very happy with my Lutron switches. So that is the answer to your lighting question. For your television question. This one I thought was kind of tricky, but it actually wasn't. Stacey, you figured this out before the show. It looks like the only way might be to add yet another hub, and that would be the Harmony hub. Exactly. And this is about 99, although I've seen it on sale for like 65. So Mm -hmm. this is a tiny little... I have one. Again, I ha- I have solved these of problems, Of course you Tom. do. <laughs> um, now, before you buy it, you can either buy it and see if it works, but Logitech has a list of all the tuners and stuff that it supports. So because you didn't tell me what your tuner was, I couldn't look it up. But, but, but it does work with most IR compatible devices, yes? Yes. It has an I- It actually comes with a little IR blaster. Now, right. this makes my husband go nuts, but- we had to put the the little hub goes in our AV cabinet under our mm-hmm. television, but the IR blaster has this little wire that connects to it. And because we don't have a hole to send you need it line through, of sight. 
Yeah. And it needs line of sight. We have to stick it out. And he hates that little wire. But he won't let me drill yep. a hole into the thing so I can fix that little wire. So I don't, I'm, I'm stuck. Um, the other thing to note is for your Chromecast audio, we're not 100% sure this is going to work. But Kevin found that, what did you find, Kevin, actually? I'm going to let you. Yeah, I did find some uh, support questions and answers about the Chromecast and the Logitech Harmony Hub. And the only mention of Chromecast audio, which suggests to me that it does work, is that Harmony, uh, or Logitech rather, suggests you create a, a shortcut to play music and so on. Therefore, it should work, in, in my opinion. They wouldn't tell you to create a shortcut for Chromecast audio to play music if it didn't work. So I suspect it does work. Probably. I mean, if, if they support Chromecast audio, it should work. But he has a Google Home, so he should be able to voice activate the Chromecast audio anyway and control it. Oh, yes, without even doing all this. But right, I will right. say that I have my tuner set up to play. Okay, this is complicated, but my Sonos goes through my tuner to some of my speakers. And I have set up a special thing, a special shortcut that's play Sonos living room. And so mm -hmm. the other nice thing is when you connect your Logitech to your Google Home, you're going to have the option of naming these shortcuts again for the Google Home or your mm -hmm. Amazon Echo for anyone who's like, oh, wait, I have an Amazon Echo. What do I do? So those are our two things for you. You are going to pay. Let's see. We've brought it up to 280. So 300 yeah. bucks. I don't know if it's worth it, but, you know, I've spent the money. <laughs> Like, I have not. <laughs> I'm crazy. Okay, so that was our question for the week. And here's our IoT improbable <laughs> device of the day. Because, <sighs> oh, so this is an Indiegogo campaign. It's for something called the Smalt. And Kevin, would you like to tell us what the Smalt is? Yes, we are talking about the SMALT, which stands for Smart Salt Dispenser, because, of course, everybody needs a smart salt dispenser. But it's more than just a salt dispenser. It's a centerpiece, according to the Indiegogo campaign. You can play music through the integrated Bluetooth speaker. You can set the mood with multicolor lighting. And, of course, dispense salt in any amount you please. I'm sorry, but... There's just no place for this, in my opinion. Uh, th this is going to be $99 for the super early bird special, but but the actual price will be $199 when it hits. So, and it ships March 2018. So we're going to have to wait a while, but my- I don't think it's going to ship at all. You're probably right. My favorite part is <laughs> that it is enabled with Madam A, so you mm -hmm. can tell her to dispense a tablespoon of salt. But if you don't have an Echo, you can go in the app- and do gestures oh, yeah. for a pinch and a dash. Because I know when I'm dispensing salt, I really want to open my phone. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen decently large salt shakers before. This is big. I'm looking at a picture of it right now, and it's like a two-handed device. It is. Yeah, this is, it looks like a slightly small, it looks like a bigger tap, actually. Yes. So. Yes. If you've ordered one of these, you know what? Send us an email and explain why. And not to make you to feel that. bad because no. there are plenty of devices and I'm like, that is stupid. And then someone's like, actually, it's this. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. So tell us why, if you are one of the backers of this product, you backed it. And that is it for this week's show. So stay tuned for a message from our sponsor, Heiko Solutions, and 
for this week's guest, Sam George of Microsoft's Azure IoT platform, where we will learn lots about IT, OT, other T's, no T's. Now I'm just getting silly again. All right, stay tuned. Hey, everyone, we are breaking into the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Heiko Solutions, and I have Jeremy Yudovich here from Heiko, who's going to tell me a little bit about what Heiko is. Jeremy? Quite simply, Heiko Solutions is an advanced IoT engineering firm. Our mission is to really mass up product owners uh, and IT executives uh, here in the United States that are, are really trying to solve some of the most difficult IoT engineering problems. We bring in some of the brightest software engineers, embedded systems engineers, and data scientists uh, out of Eastern Europe. And uh, of the several hundred engineers that we have on our team, over 60% of these engineers have either a master's or a PhD degree. Many of them are still lecturing in the university systems uh, in Eastern Europe. And actually, out of all of the employees that we have at Heiko, over 60% of the degrees are in mathematics. So we have some of the brightest, smartest individuals that are really working on cutting-edge research and development in the area of IoT. And it's our job to put them in touch with U.S.-based clients. And how does an engagement with Heiko happen? How does that get started? Generally speaking, a client is going to start with a smaller, we could call it a pilot project, where they're just going to get an opportunity to assess, hey, is this going to be a good fit for us? And, and really for us too, uh, should we be working together? Because let's face it, I can sit here and tell you how great we are and, and I can provide you with some really solid documentation that is super technical and you'll be able to see like, well, okay, maybe these folks know what they're doing. But the reality is you need to get connected to our technical team and, and get some of the knowledge from them firsthand and, and see that's communication strong. And, you know, again, just uh, we want you to be comfortable knowing that you have a good partner. And until you interact with the team that you're going to be working with, it's just really difficult to know that. So usually a, a small pilot engagement is how we would get started. Jeremy, that sounds great. So how can I get in touch with Heiko Solutions? Go to our website, uh, www.heiko-solutions.com. There's a lot of uh, great information regarding our services. Again, just heiko-solutions.com. Thanks, Jeremy. And guys, that's heiko, H-I-Q-O-solutions.com. everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Sam George, the director of IoT for Microsoft Azure. Hi, Sam. How are you today? Doing great, Stacey. Thanks for having me. Man, I am super excited. We have had several conversations and every single time. We have. Yeah, I learn a lot. So this time I'm excited to bring the rest of you guys listening along for the ride. So let's get started with a conversation about IoT architectures. Woo woo. So you guys, when we first talked, we had a big conversation a couple of years ago or year and a half ago about kind of a lot yeah. of things happening in the cloud. I think you were looking at kind of the middle area. So not the edge, but that middle gateway area. And you were mm -hmm. like, I don't know if we're yeah. going to need to be there. Yep. And how has that changed? Because it certainly has. Yeah, well, I mean, we did we did realize really early on that as IoT got going, that there was going to be this natural balance or natural equilibrium, if you will, between processing that happens in the cloud and 
from that happens out on devices themselves. And so, you know, that's always sort of been one of that central central tenants that we were looking at. We introduced a gateway SDK uh, last year, and then we just announced some new capabilities as well for Edge. So Edge is definitely, or broadly what we call is Edge, definitely a big and central part of our IoT strategy. Okay. And how are you guys defining the edge? Because when I think of the edge, I think cloud, then I think gateway that's usually on-premise. And then when I think of edge, Mm -hmm. I actually think of like nodes, not necessarily sensors, but maybe sensors. Everyone's Mm -hmm. a little different that way. Yeah. We define edge as anything that's capable of running some intelligence located in a physical environment outside the cloud. Um, And so that could definitely be a gateway. It could definitely be an IoT node or a combination of the two. It really just depends on capabilities. I mean, you know, as you look at the spectrum of devices in IoT, you see everything from tiny, tiny sensors all the way up through full-blown, you know, multi-blade gateways and everything in between. And so when we think about edge, we think about, you know, there's these waves of computing that are happening. There's cloud and then IoT leverages cloud, and then Edge leverages cloud and IoT. And we define the two slightly different. You know, IoT is about sending signals from those devices and then acting on those signals. Edge is about pushing cloud intelligence down into the devices themselves so that they can run offline or low latency loops, you know, fail-safe systems in case there's local network outages. I mean, another big trend is simply just minimizing the amount of data that's being transferred between devices in the cloud. That's part of that equilibrium that we think about between edge and cloud. Okay. And you you just threw in like a whole new, I don't even know what to call it. It's like a, I'm going to say a fog in my cloud. No, some vapor somewhere. <laughs> so I got you on cloud. I got you on yep. edge. So when you're talking yep. about IoT just being signaling, kind of help mm-hmm. me understand what you're talking about there and maybe give me an example. Let's say, for example, you know, customers doing predictive maintenance on some you know, industrial hardware. They don't want to over-service it or under-service it. If the device is simply just sending heaps and heaps of data to the cloud and you're doing you know, machine learning and analytics there you know, to determine the maintenance window and maybe even you know, shut down the machine in case of a pending failure, you know, I kind of classify that usage as pretty straightforward and vanilla IoT. Edge is sort of that next leap where instead of sending all of that data to the cloud, I can, to, to, for processing, I can take the processing and move it to where data is, you know, because as machines, as, as IoT really gets going, these devices generate more and more and more data. Data has gravity, and it's much easier to move compute to where data is than to move data where compute is. So in this example that I was just giving about industrial equipment, it's much easier to just take that cloud intelligence about, you know, when do I need to shut this down or when is the maintenance window need to be adjusted? take that from the cloud and just run it right on the device. Okay. So on the IoT thing, I'm thinking this is a differentiator here is there's not a real-time element for the edge stuff. I'm thinking real-time. I'm thinking maybe conservation of data. That That's not really a... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not making decisions. There's no decision-making happening you know, on the IoT device Got in it. sort of plain vanilla IoT versus an edge. There is. There's some intelligence there that's deciding to take actions in an unsupervised manner. Okay. So when I look at all these IoT edge things that are coming out, <laughs> you guys have yours, other competitors have theirs. Mm-hmm. That's it's the decisioning that I should be thinking about and looking at. That's the Yeah, okay. exactly. Exactly. Now you guys work with a lot of 
big industrial companies. Most of the big players that I talk to, they're like Azure all the way. So I'm very curious because you're probably dealing with this right now, this divide that they have between the IT side of the house and the operational side of the house. And I'm wondering how far the IT infrastructure can actually stretch. Because if I talk to someone like Honeywell, they have parts of their factory automation that's on their gear, on their private networks, and a lot Mm -hmm. of it's wired. So I'm curious how far into that infrastructure you can go or you even want to go. And I think that's a big part of why, you know, we think edge is such an important concept because there's many, many times where you want, you know, all of that logic, but then you want to be able to, you know, run it locally, you know, under the control of, you know, local ITOT teams. You know, a lot of people, especially in the commercial and industrial IoT space, want to make sure that their data stays resident. And, you know, the things that we're doing with IoT Edge and also with Azure Stack are really about enabling that. Who is managing these and buying these inside these companies? Because I talk to these OT guys and they are very smart, but they're very smart about different things than what I think (laughs) the typical Azure customer might be smart about. IoT is a really interesting domain that really forces IT and OT teams to work together. And you know, customers that have worked that out, that have worked out that, you know, balance between the two, where OT teams realize, you know, IT is going to be managing, you know, the software running on these devices, and IT teams respect the OT discipline. You know, when that really works, then you can have IoT enabled for that business. Okay. What are some best practices that you see in your customers who are actually able to do this? What are they doing? Do they, like, go on slumber parties together with their OT and IT team? <laughs> That's right. Trust falls. The most successful customers, they don't think about an IT discipline and an OT discipline. They think about different roles and what happens at different phases of the product. And what winds up happening is that both disciplines have to coordinate those roles. So for example, there's a role for designing the software, designing the software that runs on the hardware uh, and updating that. Having to think through, you know, what's the software that's going to be running on it and what's our update strategy and taking people from both disciplines and having them be accountable for designing that process together helps break down some of those barriers. Okay. How often does that actually happen? It really depends on the customer. I mean, in many, some customers that have been around for a long, long time, you know, where OT has been around a lot longer than IT, that can take a long time to break down. What we find is that it really starts with, you know, executive leadership and will to mandate that, you know, these two teams are going to work together. Uh, or to pick one to be prime um, and to bring the other one along. And is the prime one, is it usually OT? It's a good question. I, I think it really varies. I'm starting to see more uh, more IT, actually. Oh. Um, but it depends on the industry. In a world where we've got like crazy security breaches happening, and even when you know you're dealing with like compliance issues at big companies, or maybe you're tracking yeah. hazardous chemicals, and this whole IoT ecosystem, how do you track your partners both from a compliance perspective, or just bring them on board for like tracking materials? I mean, it's it's very tough. So, what are you seeing develop there? What are you guys thinking about to make that easier? Let's pick on security for a second. You know, let's say, for example, that, you know, I'm a customer, I've built a solution, an IoT solution, and I had some partners that were involved in helping me with that or that are still operating it for me. In that situation, you know, you've had many hands touch your IoT project. 
And so, you know, if I'm that customer and I want to you know, ask the question, which I should, is my solution secure? It's not a simple answer because there's been so many, there's so many different parts of that, that solution. The way we handle that is with security programs. And so we have a security program for Azure IoT with third-party auditors that, you know, we train on Azure IoT that, you know, can come and inspect the full end-to-end solution. And part of what we're doing there is, you know, we work with standards bodies around the world. And a very important one we work with is the Industrial Internet Consortium. And so we recently introduced security maturity model. And the reason why there's a security maturity model is it answers the question of which security techniques do you need to bring to bear in IoT for which types of solutions? Because what we hear a lot of customers asking us is, am I secure? Um, and can I say that I'm certified to be secure? Well, like secure, you know, for what? For what specifically? And so you have to start talking about the different types of techniques that were employed. And what the security maturity model is, is a way of everyone agreeing, and this is why we're doing it in a standards body, it's everyone agreeing, you know, hey, for these types of scenarios, this level of security is, a, is appropriate. Um, and so those are some of the things that we're doing on, on security. But that sort of touches to your question about ecosystems where, you know, if there are a lot of hands involved, you need to find a way to certify the thing um, and make sure, certify the solution and make sure that it achieved the level of compliance or security or you know, data residency requirements. Well, and there's also this idea of it's ever-changing. So as new vulnerabilities appear, or maybe someone shifts, I mean, I've talked to people who've had one of their partners switch their underlying cloud platform, right? Or maybe their database provider. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. they've opened up a hole that they didn't realize. And it may not even be security. It may just be breaking some functionality further down in the chain. And in chasing all of that is tough, but you can't tell people, thou shalt never change your underlying infrastructure. <laughs> so, right. And that is where auditors come into play. That okay. is where, you know, there's, there's experts that, you know, make a living doing this. Do your partners proactively have to notify you when they make changes? I mean, that seems like a really obvious thing, but not everyone does that. So, <laughs> many of the solutions that we see in IoT is you'll have a partner that will develop a solution, you know, on Azure um, for IoT where the partner secures, you know, devices, builds a solution, uh, and many times operates it on behalf of the customer. And so there's not, you don't get into a case where there's, you know, lots and lots of vendors that are, you know, contributing software to that end-to-end solution. Is IoT and industrial IoT in particular, or maybe enterprise, really scalable yet? I mean, it feels like everything is still fairly custom, both because industries require highly specific things, and two, because you have these kind of custom-built solutions that may or may not be hosted on, you know, your cloud or somebody else's cloud, but still. Yeah, yeah. At this point, um, there's still a tremendous amount of vertical specialization. And I think that there's always going to be, you know, a, a degree of, you know, vertical specialization. The thing that you see all of us doing is providing more and more functionality that reduces the amount of vertical specialization that you have to do. So let me give an example. If you were to do an IoT solution, say, five years ago, you would have rented some virtual machines and built something custom yourself. 
now we have platform services where you don't have to worry about scalability. You know, we handle that part for you. You can connect billions of devices and billions of messages and all that kind of stuff. That reduces the amount of vertical specialization. And then, you know, you have, you know, like we've introduced a SaaS offering as well so that you don't even need cloud solution development expertise in order to build a cloud solution. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, the IoT industry is still pretty new. But what you're seeing, and I think at a pretty rapid pace, is you're seeing, you know, cloud vendors like us provide more and more functionality so that there's less specialization required. I have to ask this because you you brought up the billions or millions of messages. And I was talking to somebody <laughs> who was looking for an IoT solution, and they were actually frustrated because they couldn't find one that could handle, you know, hundreds of millions of synchronous messaging. And I was like, well, that seems like a lot. He's like, well, mm-hmm. I'm a consumer products company. And if I need to talk to everybody who's got my product, I want to, I need to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I understand that. Okay. So what are the kind of technologies that people need that we don't have yet? So what are you guys looking for that your customers are like, oh, we'd love this. And you're like, ooh, that would be cool. (laughs) That's a great question. One of the big challenges, imagine for a second that, you know, you developed an IoT solution and, you know, you're going to add, you know, let's say 10 million devices to it. Typically, the, what you see is, you know, you develop a proof of concept and then you have a pilot and you do it with a pretty limited device set. And then, you, you know, you do your scale tests and things like that. One of the challenges after you get all that in place shifts from being, you know, getting the solution in place to provisioning the devices themselves. You know, I'm fond of saying software is fast, but things are slow. You know, you can provision, you know, capacity for handling, you know, billions of messages in minutes. But to actually, you know, provision those devices and make them operational, that takes time. That's where, you know, we look at a problem like that and we say, hey, that's a great example where we need a service that does that. You know, that's why we introduced a device provisioning service so that devices can contact it, get provisioned to the right, you know, Azure service, and then, you know, download the latest software and firmware and get operational. Device provisioning. If you have something in the sexy, sexy world... Device provisioning services. Yes. Um, Okay. No, it's a lot of this stuff is is basic blocking and tackling, it feels like for computing problems that, you know, a lot of people in the hyperscale data center world have solved for like managing hundreds of thousands of servers. And so now you're like, hey, let's take all of that, run it out into the world where we have no control over things and their devices have not a lot of space and memory. And maybe not even great network connections. That's right. Do you have any cool favorite things that people have built that you're like, I can't believe they did this. It's crazy. One of my favorites right now is what Hershey's has done, you know, on top of uh, Azure IoT with uh, something they call the Internet of Twizzlers. And, you know, what that is, is they've actually connected their Twizzler production plant to Azure IoT to optimize it. One of the challenges someone like Hershey's faces when they're producing Twizzlers is when you put a bunch of Twizzlers in a package that says it weighs three ounces, it has to weigh at least three ounces. And tuning your factory so that, you know, it produces a predictable number of Twizzlers that weigh a certain amount turns out to be a hard problem. That's an example where they used, you know, some machine learning uh, as well as connectivity to the cloud uh, in order to monitor 
the production vats that all the licorice is being mixed in. And so they can tune the production vats and the extruders to generate precise Twizzler weights. <laughs> Saves them a bunch of money. So we just bought some the other day and I was telling people on the team, this is using our stuff. I mean, that's a, it's just an amazing thing to be part of an industry that can power those kind of scenarios. Okay, that is awesome. And on that sweet note, we shall end this show. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Stacey, always a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want more IoT news, you can sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyonioT.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.